Pod Pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I am your host, Nicole Davis. This week, I am delighted to welcome set decorator Lisa Scopper to the podcast. I came across her name uh, and work after watching Barry Jenkins's The Underground Railroad. And A, I just wanted to know who worked on that series because it is uh, phenomenal. Um, and B, I just thought the, the production design and the sets were incredibly evocative. You know, at times harrowing, at times transcendent, and that is how I came across Lisa's name. Um, and and then I, you know, I was overjoyed to discover she's also worked on shows like The Deuce and Orange Is the New Black, as well as assisting on films like The Irishman and The Greatest Showman. She's also worked on two of my favourite American indie films, uh, Sherry Baby, starring Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Down to the Bone, starring Vera Farmiga. We talk about her path into set decoration, why she actually doesn't love being on set how she goes about sourcing the stuff, and what her experiences were like on some of the aforementioned shows. If you've always been keen to know why a particular chair has been selected, or what happens to all the furniture afterwards, or how they recreated Times Square in the 1970s in the Deuce, this is the conversation for you. There are some occasional background noises, such as dogs barking, and as ever, these are recorded on Zoom. This is episode 87 of Best Girl Grip. Did you go to college? And if so, what did you study there? Yeah, I went, I'm, um, I'm, I'm actually from Italy and uh, I was, I grew up in Florence and I went to college at the Academy of Fine Arts in Florence and I went there for painting and I majored in painting and uh, with a minor in film theory. And yeah, that's, that's how it started. I always loved movies. And once I finished college, I thought I would want to be a film critic. I wanted to write about film and I thought it would be good for me to get some practice and uh, and learn the technical stuff. And I thought I'd try that in New York City. And so I came to New York and then suddenly it's, you know, 25 years later. Did you see the film industry or film criticism as kind of like a viable career? You kind of felt like there were opportunities to make a living out of it or it was more just following this gut instinct of wanting to write about film? I was so young. I was so young. <laughs> I didn't really quite know what it would come out of it, but I knew I loved to read. I loved movies. I loved to write. And I thought, well, let's see how this goes. It didn't go. So, so yeah. <laughs> and so you're in New York City. You're trying to make a living as a critic. How did this ambition collide with set decoration? And at what stage did you start getting involved with film set? Well, I, I didn't want to be a film critic in New York. I wanted to work in film so that I could learn how making movies works you know right. when you're looking at it from a theoretical point of view it's very different from you know moving uh, grip stands and all of that stuff so I went to New York I took a very um, quick class that sort of gave me a footing in in the city film class and uh, and then I just started interning in small very, very, very small movies. And, and it's sort of, I built up from there, basically. I just started working for free for a very long time on really tiny movies. And then I started making a tiny little bit of money. And, and so I, I ended up being in the art department sort of by mistake in the sense that I wanted to intern and I, they put me in the art department because I had an art background and it felt like a perfect fit because it sort of combined all my skills in, in one, my love for movies and, 
my ability to make things. I was fairly crafty and um, I just stuck around and I started from the very bottom as a PA and then I was a set dresser for a long time. I drove the truck around New York City for many years and pick, did pick up furniture and loaded and unloaded furniture and you know eight story walk-ups and <laughs> did all that. And then uh, a couple, a few years later, my first opportunity to be a decorator came up. And you know, the thing was that I was working on movies that were so tiny that even though I was the decorator, you know, I was one of two people in the entire art department. So right. it was, you know, I was a decorator and the dresser and the art director and the graphic person and, uh, you know, all of them. So that's sort of how it started. And so by the time that first set decorator opportunity came up, did you feel kind of ready to do it? Like you were confident enough to do it? Or was it still a bit, you know, felt like a challenge and like a big step up? It didn't feel like a step up because it was such a... My first decorator job was a movie called Wet Hot American Summer, which was a movie about summer camp in 1981. And, uh, you know, it wasn't super, super tiny compared to what I'd done before, but it was still very small. And I was working with my dear friends and the decorator position was sort of assigned to me again because mm. we were all kind of doing everything. So it wasn't like... It was a it was a con super conscious choice on my part and uh so at the time it was working on these little movies was much more organic than it became later as I worked on bigger productions mm -hmm. so that the roles sort of blend into one another and so it didn't feel quite it didn't feel scary it was mostly was a lot of fun and especially the project itself was so much fun and then after that I was like ooh I wonder if this is really my spot. This is what I'm going to end up doing. And so I pursued it more seriously afterwards and it sort of worked out. When you say pursued it more seriously, what did that look like? Did it kind of mean, you know, looking for jobs actively? Yeah. How did you go about that? I guess I I just sort of started taking only work as a as a decorator and or as an assistant and uh, so that I was you know I was really focusing on on the, that one aspect of mm. of the art department and that's that's how it worked out and it was again many years of doing small productions uh, until at some point the low budget world the independent film world even as as awesome as it was became a little bit tight uh because it was when you're working with a very small budget and with a very small department there's it at some point it just felt like uh, i needed more room for growth and mm -hmm. so uh within my my abilities and my skills and and not necessarily um because of the projects themselves it was really like i just wanted to learn how to do more and so i started assisting as a as you know as a, an assistant decorator i went on to do bigger projects and at that point i had a lot of experience being in charge and uh, it was a really good fit to to be not quite in charge on a on a larger project and learning from a decorator with a lot of experience and but at the same time you know i was able to do my job very well so it was a very happy transition so i worked on a lot of larger productions as an assistant with a couple of decorators who really you know took me under their wing and taught me what a real decorator does on, on these giant jobs and mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, you know it was incredible it was it was such a wonderful way to learn more about how to 
do my job and and learn it from people that were so incredibly talented and and also learn more about how to do my job in a way that is um, really creative and uh, and and artistic which sometimes when you're working on tiny little things it's harder it's harder to to be creative because you have you know very limited uh, resources. You touched on it briefly there and kind of assisting people that taught you how to do the job. I'm wondering if mentorship or that kind of thing played a, a part in your career in any other way, or if there were people that you looked up to and aspired to have their career. Well, I suppose, you know, the two decorators that I worked for the most were, uh, who also dear friends were definitely, I would definitely consider them mentors. Um, the, the first one I started with who gave me a great opportunity was Leslie Rollins, who really, uh, taught me how to be calm and uh, take everything in stride and be organized. And, uh, and then it was Deborah Shute, who is a very, very dear friend of mine, who is a big decorator and she, really taught me to to respect the art of it and and uh, pursue that aspect more than anything else and uh e- even though you know she's a very she's very organized and she's uh, she's very uh, you know there's there's elements in in my work that people don't really know about unless they're in the industry which are very technical and they're very very important they're a very important part of uh, the work of a set decorator but with Deborah it was so much about being creative and and creating things that were interesting and um uh even when the projects might not have been super interesting you know we're working on ninja turtles and, <laughs> and the project itself might not be the most inspiring thing on in the world but the sets were amazing to work on we just we created an entire world that was made out of pipe and rubber hose and crazy hardware and you know it was so that's that's I guess what what Deborah taught me it was the art of it all Mm, and I guess like falling in love with the process of what you're doing more than maybe the the bigger picture of what you're creating maybe yeah and you know of course those two things go together and it's really wonderful when you're working on projects that are also very inspiring but yeah it can be an incredibly inspiring experience even if the job itself is not so great and I mean, we're going to come on to talk about some of the more inspiring projects that you've worked on because there are many. But first of all, I'd love to get a, a better sense of what it is you do and, and how you go about doing it. Generally, what stage do you come on board a project? I usually get about, depending on the project, it's usually between eight and 12 weeks of prep before we start shooting. So it's fairly early on, you know, the art department might start a couple of weeks before the decorator and then the decorator comes on. So pretty early on in prep in the sense that, you know, when after a production office has been established and mm-hmm. all of that. And what does that prep look like? You know, are you being given mood boards to work off and how do you go about sourcing the materials that are then going to create the sets? I usually in that phase of prep, you do a lot of research. Yes. And uh, there might be some research already existing that comes from the art department and from the designer and the decorator works closely with the designer in developing, yes, a color scheme, a a mood, a tone for the sets. And uh, there's a lot of talking about that and uh, it's you know it's that in that early phase there's there's certain things that get established then might change because the the location may change the sets the the concepts of the sets may change a thousand times before you actually shoot them but the core of of what we want to tell with our work uh, mm-hmm. gets established 
accomplished in those weeks. And yeah, and then I go out and, and you know, do fabric swatching. I start sourcing the most important pieces of furniture for the most important sets. And yeah, it starts, uh, you know, it's a mixture of just sitting down and talking and sort of hashing out the, the sort of theoretical part of it. And also just get getting my feet on the ground very early on to start acquiring stuff because that's big part of what I do is just getting stuff and yeah, you know absolutely yeah just creating a warehouse of things that I can pull from uh, when when uh, I don't have time to be so so special about it later on when we start shooting I'm really intrigued by that concept of marrying the abstract with the concrete. You know, you spoke there about kind of the mood and the tone and the directors coming to you with their vision and saying, this is how I want it to feel. But then how are you then going about sourcing items and, and pieces of furniture that translate that? You know, is that just about gut instinct and having an eye or a taste? How does that work for you? You know, it, the concept of taste and eye, you know, it's it's all very... <laughs> like you said, it's a very abstract thing. And I think you just plunge and just start looking and pulling things out of the maelstrom of real sources that you might have and internet and uh, yes, your gut feeling for what things might look like, research images that might inspire you and that you, and and so, and then you work from there and you build up from there. Um, This is, you know, this is what we really like, but this is really what I can get. And these Mm. two are do these two things feel similar enough? And uh, are we on the same page as far as the uh, the vibe that we want to communicate? That's sort of how it works. And in you know, again, it's it's this. It is that mixture of the of the creative and the practical that is the most interesting part of my job, really. And I imagine they kind of feed into each other, right? Because you're going to have budget constraints that then sometimes force you to be more creative. So do you kind of see them as yeah, this this melding together of the two? It is. It, it entirely is. And then, you know, and not to mention the fact that we not only budget constraints, time constraints, location constraints, that's all, all sorts of things dictate what we can get, even on the biggest show on the planet where we have mm. unlimited money. It's still like, well, we are shooting this in a week and I only have time to get this, you know, and I have to pick it up at this certain time. And so all of it, all of it sort of pushes towards a you know a, a solution and i feel like i say this often that one of the biggest my biggest roles is to just solve problems uh that's that's what i do all day long and uh, yes it's uh it's very creative but it's also very just about very practical mm-hmm. um elements so and how do your responsibilities change on set what are you doing once you're actually on the shoot well, I I don't have a ton of interaction with uh, the onset activities. What I do is I I prep the set, I, mm-hmm. I dress, and then I might I might be there to open the set and, and show it to the director and everyone and make sure that everything is cool. And then and then I leave and I go to the next set and I prep okay. that. And so it's sort of a cycle. And that's that's how it works throughout the shoot because obviously when you're shooting, you're not going to be on the same location the whole for the whole time. Mm-hmm. So it's a cycle. Like for example, I'm working on a mini series now and we just started shooting a couple of weeks ago. For the first week we were on the main set of the show and mm-hmm. and then the second week we had five different sets that I had to get ready. So like every day I'm in a different place. Yeah, like one step ahead of where everyone else is, I guess. I'd love to know how 
detailed the sets are that you're creating because you know I imagine maybe you sometimes get actors that need items in a drawer even though the camera isn't going to look in them they kind of need the weight or to, to be able to you know look at things in order to immerse themselves in the performance so is that a conversation you're having with them to establish how many things you need in a room or on a set I don't I don't interact with the actors much I might the conversation is usually with the director and with the designer and mm -hmm. or and or with the writers but ultimately especially if it's a major set in, on a movie or a show, I make sure that everything is just like it would be, you know, draw, there's stuff in the drawers and there's stuff in the kitchen cabinets mm -hmm. and books are character driven, character specific and the records and all of that. So I do try to do that as much as I can because yes, it, it, it informs the way not only the way the actors interact with the set, but also the way the director feels on a set and how, you know, so it's, it's, I think it's a very important part of what we do. What happens to it all afterwards? Are you kind of keeping some of the items because they might be useful for future projects or yeah, I'm intrigued as to where it all goes. Uh, this is the question that I get the most. <laughs> One wants to know. So no, I don't really keep anything. But usually we we liquidate the stuff by by having sales to the trade. We usually sell to other productions. Or a lot of the time, items get stored until the movie is locked and is, is you know they know that they don't need to reshoot anything. And then by then it's been months and months and months, and I'm completely disconnected from the process of getting you know, getting rid of the stuff. So yeah, it gets, uh, I, right now because of, there's, there's been a big uh, shift in the way productions work and there's been much more sensibility towards not wasting. It used to be sometimes that, you know, even incredibly expensive things would just go straight into the dumpster because it would be more cost-effective for the right. production to just get rid of it all in one day as opposed mm -hmm. to pay for the labor to to liquidate it properly. That doesn't happen so much anymore because it's gross. Yeah, <laughs> good to know. <laughs> and so uh, things are liquidated more carefully. They're don't whatever can whatever isn't sold is donated and recycled and all of that. So but uh usually I'm not much of a I don't have much of a part in in, in that process. Do you find it easy to kind of shift between productions and different projects you know particularly if they're different eras or different worlds do you find that you need a time to kind of decompress or do you find it quite easy to move on to the next thing it's not it's never easy because you you get very attached to the projects you work on you work on but often you know especially in in the last 10 years i haven't really had the time to take breaks between projects and so i kind of have gone from one to the next and it's hard but because the nature of how things work where you know you go from you go from being in the middle of shooting to then prepping there there's always you know there's there's a little bit of downtime to, to process you start that whole process creative process again and there's you know there's time to uh, sort of move on yes but it's always it always feels like a little bit of a breakup every time you go you know you, you finish a project what's your favorite part of the job I think 
what I like the most is meeting strange people through, you know, uh, I have to source so many different weird things. And uh, so I come into contact with the most disparate kinds of humans. And it is so interesting to sort of have this glimpse into worlds that are so far away from yours. And uh, it is the most inspiring part, I think, mm. just meeting people that are so different from you and yeah, I think that that's really the most amazing part of what I do. Imagine you meet a lot of like experts or collectors who know like a lot of very specific knowledge about something very niche, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it varies, you know, it's, it's, it's just that you travel a lot for, you know, the other part that I love about my job is the driving. I drive all day long. I just really, really enjoy it. And, you know, it could be that for this project, I was uh, in the middle of um, Amish country and in Pennsylvania and I went to this uh you know Amish antique collector who had in the middle of this tiny little village with horse-drawn carriages had this enormous warehouse filled with antique shaker furniture and there I am you know with a girl from Florence you know <laughs> in the of Amish country buying <laughs> your furniture or it could be yes collectors of uh, of uh, strange things or it could just be the chance encounter of uh, you know so it's it's just the fact that you're just exposed to all the different ways that people live and what about the hardest part of the job being on set i don't like to be on set why I I just um, I get very nervous. The the energy on set is very different from how it is when you're not uh, shooting, and mm. I get very nervous. I'm very introverted, and um, uh, being around all those people makes me very nervous. <laughs> uh, yeah, the energy. I don't know. You've had all that time to prepare, and even though you're on a deadline, it's a different kind of deadline, isn't it? When you're on set, it changes. It's also hard because, uh, you know, you might have worked on a set for months and months and researched it so carefully and everything is just so and everything is just perfect. You present it to the director, the director walks in and, you know, it might just happen that they want to change everything because, you know, a stupid light has to go right where you put the most precious, amazing thing. And so that part is like, oh, you just have to take it in stride because it really is part of our job but it's hard to watch the set get torn apart which happens instantly the second you know the second they start working the set gets just ripped to pieces just because you know make room for the camera and everything and I'm imagining almost like a doll's house like you create this kind of pristine thing but then you have to hand it over to like children to play with and yeah they're gonna come in and wreck things (laughs) children are monkeys really You know, I also want to say that that's also, you know, that because it's such an intrinsic part of the what I do, it's also kind of wonderful that it, that that happens, you know, that, yes, it's all very, very precious what we do, but all, but it's also finite. It gets, it gets torn apart. It gets, and then we create something new. And that's, that's also part of what is so cool. And I'd love to then talk about some of the more specific projects that you've worked on, because your CV is incredible. And there's, there's so much that we have to dig into. And, and first off, we have to talk about Sherry Baby and also Down to the Bone, which were two of your kind of early credits and just two 
two of my favorite kind of US indie films. What do you remember of working on those films? What were your experiences like on those? I think Down to the Bone was probably one of the smallest movies I ever worked on. And uh, it was just me and the designer. And we were, we went upstate New York into a, a town called Kingston in the middle of winter. It was, you know, four feet of snow on the ground. And it was, you know, it was Deborah Granick's first feature film. And she, I think she had done the documentary before that or something that obviously showed her talent, but that was, uh, that was definitely her first real movie. And, uh, she was she was incredible it was so fun to work with her and to work with her on something of that scale where you really I got to interact with her a lot and she was awesome and uh, the project itself was uh, very fraught and you know a difficult subject and very intense and Deborah is a very very intense person but it was also you know it was inspiring and fun and I was the designer was Mark White was my very best friend and it was just the two of us doing everything, painting and painting the walls and putting together everything. And it was very, it wasn't a lot of sets. So I remember just being very, very tired and very, very inspired by it all. Sherry Baby was a little bit of a bigger project and we shot it in mostly in New Jersey. And it was probably the first time where I really, I sort of really thought about what sets should look like um, as opposed to kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that the Salvation Army has a <laughs> sofa that you afford. It was, you know, it, it was all these suburban interiors, very, very interesting to work on. And again, really inspiring people uh, to work with. I don't know, it was probably the first show where I really felt like a decorator. I had a real crew. It was, you know, it was very interesting. It was very cool to uh, see Maggie Gyllenhaal act. You know, I, she was probably one of the first real, real actors I was around. And it was impressive. And then I guess it uh, applies to both of these, actually. But when you're creating something that requires a bit more of like a rundown aesthetic, is that about kind of sourcing secondhand materials? How are you going about creating something that has a sort of a, a real lived in feel? Well, of course, when you're when you're uh, finding when you're doing that, you it's always better to find things that ha are already uh, secondhand or used um, because they have they're real, they're really used. But sometimes mm -hmm. sometimes you can't because you can't source that very specific thing, and uh, so you have to age them. So you involve your scenic department to make things look used or beat up, and that's um, you know they're very good at it. <laughs> you can really recreate that look. Uh, even though it seems impossible, but it's it's it happens. And around 2014, you pivoted to mostly working on television series. And I'm wondering, you know, was that a personal choice or just it was where the more interesting work was and where the budgets were? Well, I think that I, I it was partly dictated by, oh, there's my dog. It's partly dictated by the fact that I live in New York. I'm New York based. And mm -hmm. uh, that's what work comes to New York is mostly television. There's very little film being done in New York. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a couple of large, larger projects, larger movies that come in uh, in a year and then a number of smaller things. And so TV is where where the work is at. But I also, during those years, I may not have decorated films, but I assisted on many films in those mm -hmm. years. I think that's when I was assisting uh, Deborah on a number of projects. And so I was still working on in film, but not as a decorator, as an assistant. <clears throat> you know, I'm still in, think that assisting, especially if 
you feel that you could learn something from the person that you're working for is, uh, I mean, I would still do it. Uh, if it's a decorator that I respect that I feel could teach me things, um, I, I still, I wouldn't, you know, I was just working for Deborah recently on a, on a project this past uh, fall. So, And one of the TV projects that you did work on is Orange is the New Black. Um, the majority of which is obviously filmed inside a prison. So I'm wondering, you know, what the research process for that job was like and where you were getting materials for that. Well, I came on to Orange is the New Black on season two. So a lot of the prison stuff had already been established by during season one. And part of the prison was built on a soundstage. And, and part of it, we shot in a shutdown hospital that was, so we did, so part of it was, you know, was stage and part of it was location work. And uh, so we, you know, I came onto it with a lot of that, you know, the core of the work having been done. But yeah, you know, you learn how to source that stuff very quickly. It's a couple of companies that make institutional furniture. Right. So okay. you deal with them. And uh, again, the strangeness of what we do, you know, you're there talking to someone who builds furniture for prisons for a living. And um, it's, uh, you know, they have very, very different sort of deadlines than movies if you can imagine. So they're not really quite used to having to build things in a week or two. And otherwise that that show was again a lot of uh, a lot of location work, very fast-paced, typical TV kind of uh, rhythm. Do you prefer the pace of film or TV? Does one kind of exercise different muscles? You know, I was just talking to my colleague about this. I think always film has a different flavor to it because the pace is a little bit slower but there is something about working on tv that is you really learn how to work fast and how to be efficient uh, and and how to just again problem solve and that those are such incredible skills to have and when when you're when you're you know if you if you go back and forth between film and tv it just uh, those skills apply so wonderfully to to what we do. And it's huge. It's a huge part of what we do, being able to be flexible and finding solutions at the last minute. And that's all you do on television. And again, now television is so incredibly interesting. The content and the sets, the production value of television has grown exponentially in the last few years. So it's almost like there's very little difference at this point. You know, I'm working on a project right now that is a miniseries for HBO and we're shooting it like a movie uh, in the sense that we don't, we don't shoot, you know, with TV, you shoot one episode at a time. This yeah, one yeah. Work. And um, it's, it is, it feels like a very, very long movie, you know, and <laughs> it's, it's hard at this point. The lines have blurred so much that it's, it's hard to, tell them apart anymore. Well, I mean, speaking of HBO and cinematic, you worked on The Deuce, which I just is, you know, a masterclass in set decoration and, and production design and it just dense with period detail. I'm wondering if there was anything from that show that you were particularly proud of, of creating or sourcing. I think the most... The most interesting part of that show uh, was was recreating Times Square in the 70s and 80s. And um, it was incredibly uh, challenging um, because we it wasn't a it wasn't a stage it wasn't it mm-hmm. was it, in New York City on a real street on Amsterdam Avenue and 161st Street and not only that but we didn't block shoot it like a movie every episode we would go back and it was unbelievable you know we would have to set up 
three city blocks and make them look like Times Square, which they don't at all. <laughs> so, and you, you would have to do it in two days and then they'd shoot it for four hours and then you'd have to take it all down and then go back a week later and do it all again. And every time it was such a challenge to do it because, you know, you're dealing with a neighborhood that eventually after the second or third time, like the first time they love you, the second time they're like, oh, hey guys, <laughs> get out of here, please. <laughs> You're dealing with a neighborhood that doesn't like you so much anymore. You're dealing with logistics, incredibly challenging stuff like putting up all the signage, all the marquees. You, I had, I had crew that was on um, cranes for the duration of shooting. Basically, that's where they live. Guys that were just up, you know, in the air for four months straight just hanging and taking down and uh it was it, it but it looked great you know it looked really cool uh it looked real and uh there was very little cgi that was done to it it was a lot most of it practical the what wasn't what was uh taken out were things you know above the second floor but otherwise it was all us and uh, it was all us over and over and over and over again. We had to do it so many times. Uh, another part that was really interesting about that show was that we had to do garbage. The New York in the 70s was just, there was litter and garbage everywhere. Right. It, was, it was a bankrupt city. It was a, a city in complete disarray. And so we had basically a truck full of garbage that would go to every location. And that was <laughs> the final layer, you know, after you've dressed everything and everything is just perfect. Then you, you go, okay, bring the garbage in. And then everybody would like, you know, start scattering newspapers. And uh, and then the scenics would go after the, you know, after our, the set dressers laid all the stuff. And then the scenics would go over and like spray it with dirt to make it look like it's been sitting there for months. That was the garbage show. And it was... <laughs> One of the less glamorous parts, perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think there's even less glamorous things that we do because at least it was fake garbage. But I guess uh, the uh, a few times when we were shooting exteriors, fake garbage and real garbage got mixed up and it wasn't pretty. And obviously we have to talk about uh, one of the most recent shows that you worked on, which is Barry Jenkins, The Underground Railroad. How did you come to be involved with this project? That was my, my the, dec the set decorator, Deborah Shute, had started that project. And, and then um, she had a health issue and she had to leave. I think they were about eight weeks out. So mm -hmm. she asked I could replace her. And I took the job. It was an incredible opportunity for me. It was also very hard because I... I live in New York. The show was shot in Georgia. I have right. young kids and it required me to leave for a very, very, very long time. And, mm -hmm. um, but I, it felt like, felt like I should do it. It seemed like I could not pass up such an incredible opportunity to tell such a story and to work with Barry Jenkins and with the designer, Mark Friedberg, who most wonderful designers out there. And it was incredible. You know, it was definitely a life-changing experience working mm -hmm. on a project that has, is so fraught with meaning. It's almost just it was just almost too much to, to be around because it was so um you know it's such a huge responsibility um to be part of telling uh, that story so it was it was incredible given the blend of tones you know it's obviously a magical realist story but situated you know in a very real historical context how did that impact the the sets that you were creating and maybe the, the materials were you sourcing it, did it change that part of your job at all 
Well, it was a, a little, you know, we, we stuck to the period most of the time. Uh, as far as the decor, uh, I would say the only time when we had a little more uh, freedom was for episode two, which was South Carolina, when we were uh, able to incorporate things that didn't exist in 1850, which was, you know, electricity, lighting. And um, so that that's when we had a little more freedom with playing with the time period. But other than that, we we stuck with the, for the most part, with the historical context, out of also just respect for the material. You know, it is magical realism, but it's telling stories that are very, very real. But, you know, the the reality is that we do, I, I think that being so attached to historical accuracy in, in my work is, um, it can be very limiting and um, it's not always the right route because you might get so fixated on being historically accurate that you lose sight of uh, how to tell a story with with a set that you're creating. I, you know, in general, uh, I prefer, you know, if something looks good and is telling the right story, I think it's that's that sort of is more important than than being super super accurate in the details especially and i think that also goes with many things in in you know in filmmaking in the sense that if you if you become too entrenched in trying to be real then you lose the part where you're trying to to convey a story and i think you know that's a lesson that i learned i think it was a, one of my first big shows with was with Dante Ferretti, who's probably the world's greatest production designer, who told me the story of how when he first started working, he was working on a Fellini movie, and he was obsessing over the fact that the sink that he put in the set had no plumbing. <laughs> and Fellini was like, stop it. <laughs> Remember, this is a movie. It's not real life. It's all make-believe, so just relax. No plumbing. The plumbing won't look good. I prefer it with no plumbing. So <laughs> I was like, okay. Then if, if they say it's okay, then... And was there anything that was particularly hard to source? Everything. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was incredibly hard. I don't know uh, why, but uh, Georgia had so very little of what we were looking for. Um, uh, we were specifically looking for a lot of uh, very, very early American stuff uh, and primitive furniture. And there was nothing mm. in Georgia. Uh, and so we had to travel. Uh, I, we had to travel to mostly Virginia and North Carolina to source a lot of our stuff. Just, uh, you know, the, we had theories about it, about how just that stuff did did not survive uh, mm. the war because they, Georgia was just ravaged by by the war in a way that was that was impacted much more than the northern more northern southern states and you know it was just very very hard to get everything they in in Atlanta and in Savannah they have incredible beautiful high end furniture and uh, antiques but nothing of of the sort of mm. The look that we were going for. So I had to bring stuff in from all over the country. So it was very, very challenging. And also just because of that, I had to create an enormous um, warehouse so that we would always have a place to pull from more than I needed so that in case of emergencies, which happen on a daily basis, I could, you know, just pull from my warehouse. This is more of a personal question, but it kind of just occurred to me that your job is 
you know, very much about the past and, you know, finding items, yeah, that were important to people, you know, from from long ago. And I'm wondering if it's made you kind of very conscious of archiving things and keeping hold of personal items. No, the opposite. (laughs) I'm really detached, you know, ideal in things. That's, you know, ideal in, in, in this very mundane world of like just stuff. And so stuff, like it just sort of stops having so much value um, mm-hmm. because there's always more. There's always more stuff. Like we are just, there's just so much of it. And so I've, I've become a lot less attached to things than, than I used to be. It also, when you're working in film, things just break all the time, especially if you're working with things from 200 years ago, forget it. They just break their, their, and, and so you have to then fix them and then, or get, get different ones or whatever it is. And so you, you just learn to not grow attached to anything because everything breaks. You have to throw it out at the end of the movie or somebody steals it or whatever. And then coming to the end, I'd love to know if it's something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career or, or perhaps something that you wish that you'd learned earlier. I think uh, you, I think the biggest thing for me was to learn to always say yes whenever you're asked to do the most impossible things. You just say yes because there's always a solution. There's always a way to make it happen. There's always um, there's there's always a way. And I used to be very scared in the beginning, you know, especially when you when I was working on such in, on things that were of such limited scope. You really it felt like nothing was possible and at some point I really had to shift that concept because we we work we are in the business of creating impossible worlds and so why should what I'm asked to do be impossible of course there's always a way to make it happen and it sort of it, you know it helped uh, release a lot of fears and a lot of worry over you know I just you know, you just say yes, and then you figure it out. And it makes everyone happy. Um, and then finally, I'd love to know if there's a film from a woman director that you consider to be a bit of a hidden gem. I was thinking about this last night. Uh, and uh, I was having it's it's very sad that when when I was younger, and really film was all that drove me, there were such few women directors. And uh, thankfully, the it's changing and there's so many more now, but it's still, you know, it, it's still kind of shocking how few titles I was researching and, and thinking and thinking and uh, how few titles are, you know, before the mid nineties, it's incredible. But anyways, the one film that was so important to me, especially because of its elusiveness was um, uh, decay of the Western civilization by Penelope Spheres. It was a documentary on, on, punk rock and I was definitely in that hardcore punk rock scene when I was a kid in Florence, Italy. And uh, uh, that movie was legendary and completely unavailable. And because at the time it just wasn't, hadn't been distributed in Italy. So there were no copies of it. And it was, and then finally they obtained a copy that they projected in this special movie theater where all the cool kids would hang out and and so we got to see it and it was you know the the movie of a lifetime Uh, so that was that was definitely uh there was so much expectation of it and and all the expectations were met oh well thank you for sharing that and I mean I would obviously have to add down to the bone and cherry baby if if people hadn't haven't seen those because they're also fantastic Lisa thank you so much for talking with me today it's been such a pleasure to hear more about your job 
Same here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. If you're particularly interested in set decoration and production design, I recommend tuning into my episode with Ginny Godwin. I'll be back with another episode next Tuesday, but in the meantime, have a wonderful week. Music